Dear listener, before we start today's episode, I want to tell you about a resource I've created, which I want to share with you for free. I'll tell you what it is and how to get it. If you're not already writing tests for your Rails code, you're probably aware that testing can help you ship your work faster and with fewer defects. Because testing is such an in-demand skill, but since so few developers know how to do it properly, I've created a resource for you called the Beginner's Guide to Rails Testing. This guide is a short, downloadable book which answers the most common Rails testing questions that beginners tend to have, including which testing framework should I use, RSpec or Minitest? What level of test coverage should I shoot for? What are the different kinds of Rails tests? What are all the Rails testing tools and how do I use them? My guide covers these questions and several others. To get the beginner's guide to Rails testing, go to railstestingguide.com. Now on to the episode. Casey Watts, author of Debugging Your Brain. Casey, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Thank you. Uh, would you like to tell us about yourself? Uh, sure. I like to start with, I really enjoy blowing bubbles. I can't wait until this summer when I can take crates of bubble equipment to DuPont Circle in DC, and we can blow bubbles, and they won't be poisonous at some point. Wait, they won't be poisonous? <laughs> And lately, if you were to blow bubbles, you don't know if you're carrying any kind of disease, a pathogen, airborne. I wouldn't dare do it. Oh, that's a good point. It could be a, a biological weapon if you're blowing a bubble. Bad <laughs> True. news. There was an episode of Naruto that was literally that was the plot point. Oh, wow. That's the only episode I saw, honestly. But <laughs> um. So, yeah, and, you know, this is how a lot of these uh, podcast episodes talk. We talk about bubbles for a while, and then we get into the tech stuff. Um, but one other thing I wanted to ask you about, I read your bio on the RailsConf um, website, because I know you're doing a RailsConf workshop this year, and it said that you can play 10 musical instruments. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, at least 10. I've lost count. I have so many in my shelves. I have an instrument in every color. And I can at least play Lady Gaga's Bad Romance on all of them. Oh, I see one in the background now. I see some kind of trombone or something. Yeah, it's an orange plastic trombone, a P-bone. Got it. Um, so what else? Guitar, piano? I have those. Yep, yep. Uh, ukulele. Mm -hmm. I have a, a little keyboard, a MIDI keyboard, Lumi. It's very pretty. Mm. I got a lot of ads for that over the past year, and they finally got to me. Do you have one of the, is it that kind of keyboard that you can like plug the mini controller into your computer and record with it? Do you ever do that? Yeah, I do that a lot actually. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's something I like to talk about whenever I have musical guests on the show because I, I play music too. The, the um, music that plays at the beginning of the episodes is something that I wrote and recorded myself. Uh, and yeah, a lot of programmers are also musicians. It's kind of interesting. Um, True. So... 
okay, so we, we covered uh, a little bit about you. Let's talk about your book and all that stuff. So you wrote a book called Debugging Your Brain, and you have like an educational background in this kind of stuff too. Can you tell us a little bit about like what got you interested in this stuff and what made you want to study this topic? Yeah, good question. I love this topic. Uh, so I studied neurobiology at Yale University, and I'm co-author in a few papers, which honestly are irrelevant to the book. Uh, but I'm just generally very interested in psychology and how to help people be their best selves. And I've um, thought about it a lot. I've read a lot about it, and I teach workshops on it, like the one at RailsConf coming up. After I gave talks like that at tech conferences for years, I think it's been five or six years now, um, people love it. They come to me afterwards and say how valuable these lessons are. Eventually, I took the time to turn it into a book so it could have a wider reach. And just out of total curiosity, how long did it take you to write a And like, how big is the book? Is it like a big, thick 800-page book, or is it a, a little short one? And like, how long did that take? Yeah, it's a 90-page book, which I got down from like 150 pages. I love short, concise writing. That's my style. It took a lot of work to make it small. Uh, it's also an audiobook. It's an hour and a half long. I recorded it in my recording studio in my closet at home. Nice. Uh, the process, I mean, overall, it took years of thinking and iterating on the messaging and talking to people about it, and the discussions helped me get the ideas down. When I was ready to write it, I took a YouTube transcript of a talk that I liked. I downloaded it, and I edited that into paragraphs, which was a mess. I would not have published that as a book in any way. And then it took me months of editing. It took me, um, I tried one month taking off of work, and that wasn't enough. And then I took three months off of work to edit it myself. I sent it to 40 reviewers. It is very clear and very concise. I'm so proud of this thing. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, this makes, I, I need to get the book now because this is a topic that overlaps with my interests quite a bit. And if you spent that much time condensing it down, it, it must be, it must be very, uh, like you say, concise and, uh, and all that. Um, let's talk about a little bit about what is in the book. Um, so one of the chapters in the book is modeling the brain. You have on your website kind of a listing of the chapters, this summary or whatever of this one says, introduces a discrete mental model of how your mind works, especially around thoughts and emotions. Can you tell us a little bit about what that chapter is all about? Yeah, I like to start with the most general model you could ever have, which is the input process output model. And developers, we probably recognize this because functions are kind of that. They have arguments and they have return values and there's stuff in the middle. We can model the brain just like that. Uh, in fact, some of the early psychology experiments, like ones that you find in textbooks, did that with animals. When Pavlov taught a dog that a bell ring meant food was coming, he would measure the saliva the dog produced. That was the output to the input of the bell. And a lot of psychology is based on that. Okay. Conditional. Yeah, I um I recently listened to this audiobook, uh, The Blank Slate by Steven Pinker, and he talked in part of that book about what he called the theory of mind. And something that he said that I thought was really interesting was he said that well, first of all, what is the theory of mind? It's basically our conception of how the mind works. And he said that everybody has a theory of mind. And that's kind of an interesting point because yeah, everybody has some idea whether you really consciously think about it or not of how your mind works 
Um, and so is, is that a topic or a, a concept that you've come across in your studies that something called the theory of mind? And if so, how is that different or similar to what you might call modeling the brain? When I hear theory of mind, I usually think about developmental psychology. So like children don't have a great mental model of what other people are thinking until they get to a certain age. And then all of a sudden they seem to realize that other people have thoughts going on similar to theirs. And then similarly, adults often have a better theory of mind, but the most empathetic ones really understand another person's point of view more deeply. They can predict things better. So that's what I think of when I imagine when I think of the term theory of mind, it's like, how well can you imagine another person's mind? It mm. applies to your own mind too, but that's a, a useful application of it is thinking about, in general, other people's minds. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, something else in your book is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a term that rings a bell for me, so I must have come across it before, but I have pretty much no idea what it is. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, and CBT and uh, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, are two of the talk therapies that I I cover in my book a little bit and I take a lot of inspiration from. Those are two of the most common and popular talk therapies. So if you went to see a therapist, they're going to use a, a lot of different modalities, a lot of approaches to talk to you and work through problems, but CBT is one of the most common and popular ones. And it works on so many mental illnesses, it's almost more interesting to list what it doesn't help with. So I like to call it cognitive behavioral training because the principles are just applicable to everyone you don't need a mental illness you don't need a diagnosis to find value in those techniques and so what's an example of some kind of a mental health issue that somebody might have that could be addressed with cbt yeah that's uh depression is maybe the most common example and the most common uh, diagnosis that this helps with and it's as effective as taking antidepressant drugs going through cbt with a therapist versus taking drugs and often in combination, it's even stronger, and you would navigate that with a doctor, but it is very powerful. Yeah, I read this book. I think the book was called The Depression Cure, and it listed like six particular things. I'm not going to remember all of them, but the the book kind of advocated against uh, drugs for depression because it said kind of like the drugs would have an effect in the beginning, and then it would wear off. Um, but certain other things were more effective, um, and I'll, I'll just list what I can remember, which is uh, exercise, engaging activity, um, sunlight exposure, and I think those are the only three things that I can remember. But I think like to a great extent, humans are just uh, what I've heard termed as moist robots, where we, we're just even though I don't necessarily like to ad admit it, um, we're just machines. Um, and with the machine, you give it an input and you can expect a certain output. And there have been times when I've felt uh, down or whatever. And when I do some things that are as simple as get a little more exercise for a little while and up my intake of fruits and vegetables and eat less of things that aren't fruits and vegetables. Uh, and maybe another part is uh, better sleep habits, like going to bed and getting up at regular times as opposed to 
staying up late and sleeping in and being more willy-nilly with sleep. Just those few things, even though they have nothing to do with the actual content of what might be causing my problem at the time, make a huge difference as to as to my mood. Yeah, it absolutely does. And it's funny, even though like we all know that, we all know exercise and diet and sleep help, but in the moment you're not feeling great, realizing that's going to help and being motivated to do it, it's just kind of distant. I think partly because there's a time lag, so we don't associate it as directly or I don't know, something like that. But we definitely don't just do those things because they help. We have to like trick ourselves or form habits. It can be really powerful, but it's hard to do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And there often maybe doesn't seem to be a super strong connection between whatever problem we perceive at the time and these like really dumb sounding things like, oh, like you're having a problem at work and you're you're stressed and you're feeling depressed because your your life is going terrible. So I should just eat some vegetables and it'll fix it. Thanks. But like that doesn't sound like it would work. But a lot of time it actually does work. And not saying that obviously yeah. works in all cases, but a lot of times it can at least make an improvement. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in my book, I put that category of stuff into, it's one of the four inputs when we're modeling the brain as a system. Uh, so we have automatic thoughts and automatic feelings that just happen to us that we didn't control. They just happen spontaneously. Bodily state, which is that one. And then external stimuli, stuff that happens around us. And a lot of people don't notice that bodily state affects it. I'm thrilled that the word hangry has gotten more popular because that is a very, very poignant uh, version of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's funny because that, that word definitely has become more common and somebody used that word uh, just the other day in a, in a conversation with me. Um, here's a question for you. Um, so uh, this is a podcast for programmers and you're giving a workshop at a programming conference around this topic. And so how does all this stuff relate specifically to programmers or does it relate specifically to programmers? Because obviously a lot of this stuff is applicable to anybody, but are there certain aspects of it that are applicable specifically to programmers? Great question. So the content is general, honestly. A lot of non-programmers have read the book, probably more than programmers. And they, they read it. I made the programming examples approachable um, so that someone without programming background could read it. But it borrows a lot from the programming mindset of making things very discrete. And I think that's really helpful for people in general. They're like uh, inputs, four inputs. That's all there are. There's just four categories. That's what I said. And people say that kind of idea all the time, but I break it down to make it so distinct and discrete. And like you could model it in a model, in a computer program if you wanted to. Wait, sorry, what are the Another, four categories? The four inputs are uh, automatic thoughts and automatic feelings and bodily state. And the fourth one is external stimuli stuff that happens to you okay that's just an example of like how i'm making this stuff discrete Mm -hmm. okay um yeah um and this sounds like the kind of thing that would um that would interest programmers a lot because it's uh I don't know, programmers tend to be smart people and they, at least me, I can't speak for anybody else, but I think this is probably the case. I'm always looking for ways to enhance my own cognitive abilities. And something I've discovered, which I find kind of sad, is that you 
can't increase your G, which is like your raw processing power. So you can't become any more, any smarter in that sense. But you can obviously learn more stuff. And I think if you understand, so a couple things, like I think if you understand your mind better, then you can use your mind better. And if you understand human behavior better, then you can understand yourself better in terms of like emotions and psychology and all that kind of stuff. And what's hugely powerful is if you can understand what motivates other people, then you can interact with other people more effectively and do a much more effective job of getting what you want out of life. Um, are any of those things part of what drives your interests in these topics? Yeah, totally. My f- favorite p- chapter of the book, honestly, is the one on validation, which is focused on how you can help a friend feel understood. And then conversely, how you can use that understanding to ask for the support you need and process things on your own. But that part is my favorite because it's eye-opening, mind-blowing for a lot of people that there's a framework for how you can help people feel understood. Uh, like Six levels of validation are covered in the book. And lately, I've been breaking it down into like four and three in my talks. Um, but anyway, like that helping people feel understood is so important and not discussed enough. Yeah. How do you make somebody feel understood? So what people normally do is your friend starts complaining about a problem and talking about it, uh, seeking your support, and then you help them solve it all of a sudden. <laughs> and then they become quiet and you don't know why. Because that's not what they needed. That's not what they wanted was solving it. They're still working on putting it into words and making sure that it makes sense. So I, I say um, in my discrete framework in the book, I describe it as you verbalize. You want to describe your experience in words, and then you want to validate it, which is similar to the programming term. You want to make sure it's correct, kind of like writing unit tests. And you can do that by asking a friend, does this make sense? Have I explained this well? Am I missing anything? And if they say, that totally makes sense. Like, check that, pass the test. I'm confident in the way I'm verbalizing the experience. Got it. Yeah, um, that concept of like diagnosing before you prescribe or even just, you know, a lot of times when people describe a problem to you, my my habit when I was younger certainly was to say, oh, you're having that problem. Well, you should do this and this will fix that problem. But it's like, wait a second, what made me so sure that they even want a solution? Is that what they're after? Or do they want to just... Um, tell me what they're feeling and just gain a feeling of being understood because maybe that's all they want. And I think in quite a lot of cases, that really is all the person wants. Yeah. And there's another distinction I want to point out, and that's uh, sometimes they just want to put it into words. They want to talk at you and have you say things back to them the way they said them, similar to that. Um, And that's separate from they already kind of know how to say it and they just want to share it and have someone say, that makes sense. It's kind of two yeah. stages. You you have to be able to verbalize it before someone can say, I get it, and that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of like the deepest human needs is the need to feel understood by other people. Because when you, when you feel like nobody understands you, that's a very lonely feeling. Yeah, so lonely. And like disorienting. Uh, sometimes it feels, it's similar to like being gaslit when someone misunderstands you on purpose, but even if it's not intentional, it can have a similar feeling, like very disorienting. Yeah, 
Yeah. And something that I've come to realize in recent years is like um, people have a need for like a, they have a need to be part of a social group. Um, at least this is what I've kind of inferred based on my experiences in life, not from, from any uh, book or anything like that. Um, but I think people have a need not only to have friends, but to have like a friend group. So I think as people get older, you know, you, you don't have a social group in the way that you did when you were younger anymore. Uh, like me, I'm, I'm 37 um, and I have kids and my relationship with relationships with friends these days looks a lot different than my relationships in high school and college. In high school and college, it was like a small group of people who would all hang out with each other. Everybody in the group more or less was friends with each other. And I think for a lot of grown-ups, your relationships are more fragmented. Uh, you might have one friend over here, another friend over here, but those two friends aren't friends with each other, and so you're not part of a cohesive social group. And I think that a uh, social group helps you, uh, helps you have some kind of anchoring as to who you are and what you're all about and stuff like that. It provides you with a little bit of a, a mirror. Um, and if you don't have that, then it's like, okay, well, I'm hanging out with this person over here and we have this kind of relationship and I feel like I'm this kind of person. Then I'm hanging out with this person over here. And it's a totally different thing. It's like, wait a second, who am I? Uh, and it's, it, it doesn't give you that anchoring. And I think that's a deep human need. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I feel much better when I'm one me and I can be that consistently through lots of different environments. I'm not sure everyone feels the need for that, but it's definitely important to me. Um, there is research on community being important in general. If people who have more community, stronger social ties with more people, are just happier and healthier and live longer and all that like plenty of research correlating community to health yeah and that might uh, be a good segue into sorry what's that yeah. it's true inside mental health concerns too people with more community have better outcomes um and that might be a good segue into another topic we wanted to talk about which is community um and pre-show we talked about that a little bit and do you mean community within, uh, well, I guess I'll just ask you, uh, how do you think about community maybe in the in the development industry or Ruby community or, or whatever? Yeah, the communities I'm part of lately are often around an interest group. So I do have a dancing community, programming community, the Ruby community in particular, even though I haven't done Ruby in three or four years, I still go to Ruby meetups more than any other language because it's the community that is the people I know and the values of the community I really like. I love um, Matt's is nice and so we are nice, kind of like defines the ethos of the community in a way, in a, a beautiful way. Are, are there, off topic question, but are there still, well, not now during coronavirus, but in recent years, are there still like active uh, Ruby meetups in DC where you live? Yeah, a ton. There's, yeah. Um, there's actually like one in Maryland, one in Virginia, one in DC, and people go between them sometimes too. Oh, okay. Yeah, where I live, there was one, and I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, or outside Grand Rapids, Michigan, and there kind of was one. It was active like 10 years ago, and then it got smaller, and 
obviously no meetups are happening in person right now, but I think that's the experience of a lot of smaller cities is they don't really have a, a really Ruby meetup to speak of. It might just be like three or four people once in a while, but hopefully yeah, that kind of, hopefully that kind of turns around. Um, I've, I've noticed in some smaller cities like New Haven, I used to live in New Haven, Connecticut and um, Iowa city they have communities for like the general tech group in the city. And actually DC has it too. DC tech Slack is a general tech community in DC. And I think that's awesome. And I hope more and more cities get those that don't have them yet. Yeah. We have that in Grand Rapids and it's great because it's like not really a big enough community to have all different kinds of meetups. And it's small enough that we can just lump everything together. And I think there's even other benefits to that like a cross pollination that happens it's it's not always good to be focused just on your own uh technologies without ever talking to anybody from the outside Mm -hmm. yeah um so what are your thoughts on the ruby community in general do you have ideas as to how we can improve the the ruby community or or is there maybe something else that you wanted to discuss regarding that topic i'm thrilled with the ruby community still uh, membership might be dropping a little bit as people do other languages. But uh, yeah, so I guess what I want from Rubyists is to carry that ethos forward of Matt's is nice and so we are nice into other communities to help them be as welcoming and inclusive and kind and empathetic and to bring those values to other communities. Some of the other ones I've been to are uh, pretty good too. And some are less good, less inclusive. It's more like random collection of people more than a community. And there, it definitely varies widely. So people mm. who know what how good a, a strong community can be can take that forward and strengthen other communities you join. Interesting. Yeah, I um I never had gone to a whole lot of tech conferences in my life. Um, and then in the year of 2019, I went to a whole bunch of tech conferences because I had like a goal to speak at a tech conference. And to make a long story short, I applied to a whole bunch of tech conferences with the idea that if I applied to like 50 of them, I would get one acceptance or something like that. And I don't know how many I even applied to. Maybe it was 50, maybe it was 100, I, I don't know. But I ended up getting like a dozen acceptances. And so from the fall of 2018 to the fall of 2019, I spoke at, I think, nine conferences all over, well, not all over the world exactly, but all over the country and then some outside the U.S. as well, at least one outside the U.S. at least. So I got a lot of conference experiences. And it was kind of interesting to note the differences among the conferences. I went to one non-Ruby conference that had kind of a different feel from the Ruby community, but it was a good feel. Um, And then I went to one that had a different feel from Ruby, and it, it was not a feel that I liked. And I don't know what was different. I just know that it was different a different culture somehow i'm not sure and then another thing is is difference in sizes of events so i really i don't know about you casey but i really enjoy the small conferences like i went to southeast ruby in 2019 really small conference i really enjoyed it because you would see the same people repeatedly you get to know people make new friends stuff like that I went to my first RailsConf in 2019, and it was just huge. There were all these people I was looking forward to seeing in person. You know, you have these internet friends, and then you get to see them in person at conferences. 
It's like, even though I knew so many people there, I couldn't find them. <laughs> and so it's like, wow, this is just like too many people. So I prefer the small ones. Um, what about you? Yeah, I definitely feel more community in the smaller ones. And that's something I'm often looking for is like to get to know people and form relationships with them, like friends and professional both probably. Uh, and at the big conferences, I often feel lost in the sea too. Uh, in the DC meetups, there's one that's often two or 300 people at a really large auditorium and library. And that's my least favorite one, honestly, even though if the content's good, but I never found someone I knew in the crowd. It's just so big. I think that's valuable too, in a way, getting a lot of people to see good content, but it's not a community and they're not, they weren't trying to form like discussion and encourage that. And at that scale, I guess it's harder. I don't, I don't know that it was a mistake they made, but it's not necessarily what I'm looking for either. I'm more interested in the smaller community groups. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. There are certain things that I like about the big, it's kind of neat to go to RailsConf and like see all the big name rails people there and, and get to talk to them. Like I remember RailsConf, you know, I met, uh, Mike Parham and Jason Charns, Chris Oliver, all these people who, who, you know, I knew their names, but I'd never actually met them in person. So that was a super cool experience just to have everybody together at once. But then kind of the trade-off is it's just the sea of people and it's hard to, hard to find the people you want to hang out with and, and all that stuff. Hard to make new friends. Um, during times in the world when there's not a global pandemic, do you like to go to a lot of conferences? Yeah, I love going to conferences. I, I, I can't, I don't have the energy to conference and be social the entire conference at any conference, but I really enjoy however much energy I have socializing that much. Super. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Like I am like physically unable to sit through more than like one talk per day which maybe maybe sounds like i don't know lazy or something but i just i can't do it i also like can't watch movies like i can't watch a whole movie if i watch a whole movie like sometimes every once in a while i'll sit with my family and i'll I'll watch a whole movie and my wife will be like wow you sat through an entire movie good job uh so i i just can't do that i prefer to like float around the halls and and just talk to people but after like i don't know half a day of that i just need to like go back to my hotel room and just not be around anybody for yeah. a while and and just recharge which i think is probably a pretty common way to be for programmers totally yeah um so in your studies of going back to the the brain stuff again in your studies of of um uh, what what's the word that you use anyway? Um, neuroscience. How do, what term do you put to it? Uh, neuroscience is true. I usually say neurobiology too, kind of interchangeably. Yeah. Okay. So, like, what role in everything that you study does like evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology play? Uh, so that wasn't my focus, but it was a, a class I took for a lot of interesting nuggets. Uh, theory of mind definitely came up there. Like we learn that as children. Um, I don't know what else I can cover. <laughs> it's a big yeah. field. Yeah, that's true. And I just asked because that's kind of a particular interest of mine. I read this super interesting book some years ago by uh, Carl Sagan and Anne Dryan, if that's how you pronounce your name. 
um, called Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. And it talked a lot about um, non-human primates and the similarities between non-human primates and humans. Mm -hmm. And it was super interesting. Part of the book talked about, like, is there anything that's really uniquely human? And, And it enumerated these things that people have listed over the years as, as things that humans do, but no animals do. And every single item, he had a counterexample that, well, actually animals do do that. And he mentioned how uh, the closest ancestor to humans is chimpanzees, and the closest ancestors to chimpanzees is not some other non-human primate. It's humans, and chimpanzees will... Uh, they fall in love, they lie to each other, they uh, help each other, they, they live in communities, they, they smile, they, they do all these things that like, are so, um, so human-like. And so it's really interesting to study the parallels between the other animals and, and humans. And I just find all that stuff... Uh, super fascinating because again in the sense that like we're we're moist robots we're just these animals that have been shaped by all these billions of years of evolution to make us what we are and often our our behavior like for me at least my own behavior and the behavior of other people is just such a mystery like why do we react the way we do in these situations because it seems so illogical and irrational at times but if you understand like the evolutionary reasons why we behave the way we do, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It seems crazy that I would do that in that situation. But if you take into account all these things, then it actually makes sense. Yeah. A lot of it is like saving energy and effort and time, like taking shortcuts. A lot of our biases that we have are time saving, energy saving. Uh, a lot of heuristics we use to like to make decisions. What should we have for dinner? A lot of those are shortcuts too, uh, and there's some uh, some people suggest that it, we evolved that way to save energy, so that we could consume less food and rest less and things like that. And that makes sense to me. I, that sounds pretty true. We could uh, hyper optimize everything and take a week to decide what's for lunch, but we might become malnourished by that. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of areas where it's like you can take the shortcut and be right. 95% of the time and wrong 5% of the time or you can sit down and, and work it all out and be right 100% of the time but uh, on balance it's better from an evolutionary perspective to be right 95% of the time uh, yeah, and totally. take the shortcuts yeah yeah and one thing that's interesting is our ability to make arbitrary decisions like the what's for dinner thing that's <laughs> It's like one of my least favorite things that I have to do in life because, you know, there's a saying when you have a thousand options, you have no options. And it's like in our modern society, what's for, you could have literally anything and we have Mm -hmm. so many, we have infinite options and yet we have to pick something and somehow we we do pick something. I I heard this, uh, I wouldn't call it a study, it was just something on NPR or something like that about this guy who had lost a certain part of his brain and with it he lost the ability to make arbitrary decisions. And so like if he had a black pen and a blue pen, he would actually work through the list of pros and cons 
for choosing the black pen versus the blue pen to sign his name on a piece of paper and it would just like consume all of his time and he ended up getting fired from his job and he got a divorce and it just destroyed his life because he could no longer make arbitrary decisions. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and so that's a really interesting thing because like, uh, how, how would you make like a robot that can just, well, I guess that's kind of easy to answer, but how would you make a robot that can make arbitrary decisions? And it's interesting how we just so easily can say red pen or sorry, blue pen or black pen. I picked the black pen without giving it any thought. Um, anyway, a part of my book covers this a little bit. Okay. It's, um, often we're on autopilot using heuristics uh, to just make the decisions for us, like habits in our minds. And it's important that we know when we should switch gears to a manual mode and become more mindful to make the hard decisions. And balancing that's tricky. A lot of people end up just doing heuristics for a lot and not doing the manual mode as often. But when it comes to really big, important decisions and ideas, often being more careful and thinking about it critically is important and worth the energy. Mm, yeah, and this is maybe where this stuff becomes very relevant for programming because we're talking about mental shortcuts and like it can be better on balance to be right 95% of the time but not have to expend so much mental energy. But with a lot of programming issues, especially when you're debugging some tricky bug, um, you have to you have to switch to that more manual mode because in general in life, Things that seem true are true um, for obviously most, but not all things. Um, but then when you, and you know, there's not a huge cost to being wrong about a lot of stuff. Um, but then when you're fixing some bug or something like that, the cost of being wrong can be very high because if you're trying to fix a bug and you're wrong about what you think it is and you apply some fix and you tell your boss it's fixed, but then it's not really fixed and the symptom appears again sometime later, then you have to do all the work over again. The cost is high. And so being right is very important, and so you can no longer use those mental shortcuts you might normally use, and you have to fall back to that manual mode. Yeah, the opposite can be true too. Sometimes, um, me included, developers I've worked with can spend weeks solving a problem the correct way when a less correct way would have solved 95%, which just leaves like four to be manually edited by someone, which we don't like to do, I know, but I don't either. But um, that could have saved time overall. For example, in a data migration, manually correcting some things once, it's not as bad as doing it ongoing. Uh, and so it's great when we think about whether it's appropriate to be totally right or not and choose. I like that. Like It's like being deliberate about being deliberate. It's like a meta level of it. Should I apply this here, this careful thought here? Yeah, it's maybe the difference between intelligence and wisdom. It's like the question isn't how can I be right 100% of the time or how can I make the program behave correctly 100% of the time, but rather it's what's the cost of being wrong and does the cost of being right outweigh the cost of being wrong sometimes because if there's i've certainly come across occasions before where there's a bug and my first instinct is to fix the bug but then i consider wait a second this is a bug that only appears once a month 
And the consequence of this bug appearing is that somebody has to do 10 minutes of manual work. Okay, 10 minutes of manual work once a month versus me spending four days fixing this, uh, that, that doesn't work out. And so the right answer is just to let it be, as painful as that sometimes is. Yeah, yeah. There's a great XKCD comic that has a table of this. Like, if you do it this often and it takes this long to do it, it's worth it. And I, I think of that all the time. But that's just one factor, too. That's time and maybe maybe effort and energy. And you could factor in shifting gears to work on the bug each time costs something. There's also an impact on morale. And if we broke all this out into a matrix, like I do sometimes, it might be better to fix it just for morale, even if it's that frustrating for everyone. Yeah. But by time, maybe maybe not. Yeah, yeah, it's super in- interesting. The answer to like, how do we fix this bug is not always straightforward because a lot of times the answer is actually you should ask the question whether we should fix this bug and there's so many factors that go into that decision. Yeah, I sometimes teach a workshop called uh, matrix-based prioritization, which is like what we're talking about here where you write down all the criteria you're using and the possible options you have, and then you can rank them or, or weight them uh, and like calculate. And it's not that the matrix tells you the answer, but it's a communication tool to help you understand uh, what you're thinking through. And if it's a team problem, like what features to work on for the next three months, what big feature to spend a lot of time on, it can be worth being explicit about so much in like a matrix um, to get everyone on the same page about it. Um, so I want to ask you one or two more questions before we wrap up. Um, so again, you're speaking at RailsConf. You're putting on a workshop at RailsConf. This episode will air after RailsConf happens, but obviously the vi- videos for RailsConf, I understand, will be made available at some point in the future. Um, if people want to go check out your workshop when it's up online, what can they expect to to get out of it and who is it for and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, great question. Um, if you're going to do it as a workshop, which I totally encourage, you can bring a friend to watch it with you and then talk about things when we do the breakouts. They're usually pair exercises anyway. You and one person talk about a problem. People tell me that's their favorite part, getting to talk about their problems with another person who's ready to listen and then apply techniques like how to listen well or like which inputs you have and things like that. So it's a lot of hands-on content and that's everyone's favorite part. If you just want to watch, that's okay too because you'll get exposed to all these different techniques and the like very specific, discrete approach that I take to these things. Uh, and people tell me they watch the talks I've given previously, like every year, people go back to it because your life has changed and these techniques still apply and you might find new ones to apply to new problems. Um. And I'll ask one final question before we wrap up. You strike me as the kind of person who probably likes books. Um, and I'll put you on the spot and ask you, what are some of your favorite books that you've read that you might recommend to people? And this can be something related to, to the brain stuff that we've been talking about, or it could be absolutely anything else. Yeah, so I'll, I'll share a book that I read recently I liked and one that I'm planning to read that I'm confident will be good. Uh, the one that I read that I liked is Systems Thinking, a Primer. Um, and it gave me some words to use, like 12 levels. I think she wrote about 12 levels of um, ways you can influence big systems. 
And a lot of them make sense anyway. Like they weren't completely surprising. A couple were new, but just having them in a framework helps me think about it and navigate that space when I'm hacking systems. And I'm thinking like people systems, organization systems, big complex systems. Uh, they're hard. Okay. Systems thinking, a primer. We'll put that in the show notes. And then you're, there's one that you're planning to read? Yeah. It's um, by Amy Edmondson, The Fearless Organization, or The Fearless Team, maybe. Amy Edmondson was uh, the researcher who was pioneering psychological safety, which was a big term a couple years ago, and still is. The thing that makes teams really effective is when everyone on the team can share their point of view, and we get all of those points of view incorporated into the plan. And this is uh, her book covering those ideas, and I'm excited to check it out. All right. Well, we'll put that in the show notes, too. Um, uh, very last item, where can people go to find out more about you online? Oh, so my book has a website, debuggingyourbrain.com. And then I have a personal website that I blog on sometimes, caseywatts.com. I'm also happy to connect with people who want to talk about empathy and the brain and all this. Uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, feel free to reach out. Great. And um, you mentioned pre-show. You know, people listening to this obviously are people who listen to podcasts. Uh, you're on the Greater Than Code podcast, right? That's right. So people can go check out the Greater Than Code podcast if they want to hear you on podcasts some more. Uh, Casey, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jason. <laughs>